You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. If Monster Talk has a brand, it's something about promoting skepticism and critical thinking while trying to maintain objectivity and empathy. Certitude is no virtue in my world. But that doesn't mean we can't know stuff. Things are complicated. Everything is complicated. And in a world where the more you try to understand, the more you are faced with complexity, it's easy for me to sympathize with people who, when faced with complex and difficult concepts, feel the need to throw up their hands in frustration and say... There has to be an easier answer. There are always easier answers. They just usually turn out to be wrong. Today, we're going to take a break from our usual policy of avoiding religion and politics and deal with a topic that is inextricably tied up with both. We're going to be talking about young earth creationism, evolution, natural selection, and the separation of church and state. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today we're talking with Clayton Brown and Dan Phelps. Clayton and his filmmaking partner, Monica Long-Ross, produced a new documentary called We Believe in Dinosaurs, which talks about the conflicts between creationists at Kentucky's Ark Encounter, with both the rules and regulations that govern how money can be spent on religious projects, and with the way that religious beliefs can be dressed up in the language of science. Dan Phelps is one of the people heavily involved in that struggle against this incursion of faith-based business out of the public funding pool, as well as trying to educate the public about the reality of natural selection as a mechanism for producing variety through evolution. The movie is about people involved in this struggle. But before we dive into that discussion, I wanted to take a moment to talk about evolution and natural selection. 
I happen to live in the southern United States, and my community is full of people who blissfully believe in a young earth and reject the idea of evolution as a lie or a sin or at best a mistaken concept. Saying God did it is easy, but it brings us not one step closer to understanding how the natural world actually works. Evolution can be defined as change over time. Evolution is not even particularly controversial. It was widely accepted well before Charles Darwin. In fact, his own grandfather, Erasmus, had written a book trying to explain why evolution happens. It would be a less confusing landscape if the word evolution had not become confused with Darwin's explanation of how it actually works. Natural selection is Darwin's big idea to explain how evolution leads to biological diversity and speciation. And you need at least four things for natural selection to happen. First, you need a replicator. Here on Earth, biological entities rely on replicating molecules like DNA, but there are other possible replicators. A replicator is just an entity that can make copies of itself. It doesn't have to be alive. Viruses, for example, are not alive, but have a replication mechanism. Second, your replicator needs to be able to make and survive subtle copying errors. Perfect fidelity would not produce variation, so the replicating entity needs to be able to make functional copies that are subtly different. These are mistakes in copying, not intentional changes. In biology, for example, sexual reproduction leads to some variation from having two different genetic patterns mixed up to provide variation in each generation of copies. Each offspring has traits from its parents and also potential mutations. Third, you need selective pressures. In life on Earth, there's quite a few examples of selective pressures. Predators, mate preferences, metabolic advantages, toxin resistance, all kinds of characteristics might cause an individual or a portion of a population to have certain advantages. This will affect an individual's ability to survive and to replicate its genes. If the individual has faulty genes, it won't survive to reproduce. If it's too slow, it'll get eaten. If it's highly susceptible to toxins or venoms, it may die before reproducing. A combination of factors determines whether this creature will survive to make copies of its genes. These selective pressures push at the shape of future generations. And finally, you need time. If you have entities that can copy themselves, the copies each have variations, and there's pressures against certain kinds of outcomes, you start to see variations with subsequent generations that filter down to the forms that are better suited to survive these selectors. If there's a predator that prefers to eat prey with thin fur, for example, that becomes a selective pressure against short fur. Over generations, such a selector might lead to creatures with longer fur. This idea is so simple that it's almost invisible. But once you really grasp how these hidden pressures change entities over time, you start to see natural selection everywhere. Now here's the thing. When Darwin proposed this explanation, it was controversial because we didn't have an understanding of how genetics worked. Nobody knew about DNA, but we do now. These ideas are simple and I'll repeat them. Natural selection happens when you have replicators that subtly change over generations and respond to selective pressures to favor certain outcomes. Variations emerge over time as generations iterate and deal with selective pressures that also change over time. From that simple process emerge all the life forms that are now and that ever were. And that same pattern, as I hope to show in my technology book someday, is also true for inventions. As I like to quote from Gaul's Law, any complex system that works invariably is found to have evolved from a simpler system that also worked. Or to put it another way, complexity is an emergent property of variation over time. 
there's an enormity to the complexity of life that could only exist as a result of vast amounts of time. Fortunately, we have plenty of evidence that the Earth is ancient and that the universe is even more so. I'm just doing a quick intro here, but the impact of the idea that Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace put together has huge implications, and it's behind an impressive swath of academic study if you decide to go into a science career. But the world did not welcome the discovery of natural selection. Many religious groups thought that Darwin's idea was dangerous because it undermined the idea of God lovingly crafting all the animals into their particular roles. Other religious groups accepted natural selection as the mechanism by which a divine creator produced life that we know today. Scientists studied, debated, and tested, and have pushed our understanding of evolution and natural selection into deeply specialized areas of research. The people who want the Bible to be literally true have ended up resorting to a lot of special pleading and intellectual dishonesty, and one group in Kentucky has built amusement parks and supplies teaching materials to try to convince the world that... Everything was created in six days, that a giant flood destroyed the world and only a boatload of survivors weathered it, and they say that all of the biological and global diversity we see today happened in just a few thousand years. It is ludicrous to compare the scientific discoveries since Darwin and Wallace to the simple myth of biblical creationism. The amount of scientific naivete required to accept biblical literalism means that any debate is a lopsided fiasco where one side tries to explain a century and a half of discoveries while the other side can just make up stuff and say the Bible says it and that settles it. We do talk briefly in this episode about a famous creationist debater named Dwayne Gish. Anthropologist Eugenie Scott describes his debating style as a Gish gallop. This is where the creationist is allowed to run on for 45 minutes to an hour, spewing forth torrents of error that the evolutionist has in a prayer refuting in the format of a debate. So what happens when these religious groups promoting this unscientific approach to understanding the world want to also take advantage of tax breaks and other government benefits while refusing to hire anyone except absolute believers in their simplistic religious dogma? Well, that is the subject of the film at the heart of today's interview. Monster Dog. All right, so uh, Clayton, uh, welcome to Monster Dog. Dan, welcome to Monster Talk. Thank you. Hi, Clayton. I'm Karen. Thank you. Hey, Karen. Nice to hear you. Nice to meet you, yeah. A little preamble. on the, This is more for the listeners. We don't normally talk about religion, and we don't normally talk about politics, but we had this opportunity to talk about this movie, We Believe in Dinosaurs, and it covers both of those, and it is, I think, an important discussion to have. But if, if you're one of those people who can't stand to hear uh, people talk about something that's against your personal views, this may not be the right episode for you. Skip on a bit, brother. You know, we've got other content. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we've got a lot of people who will be interested or, in this topic. And considering their use of dinosaurs and claiming they lived alongside of people, I think it matches up pretty well with your podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think most I think most of our listeners will enjoy this. So, Clayton, why don't you introduce yourself, and then we'll have Dan introduce himself, and then we'll sort of dig into the meat of it. Sure. Uh, I'm Clayton Brown, and with uh, my co-director, Monica Long-Ross, and uh, my co-producer, Amy Ellison, we made a movie called We Believe in Dinosaurs, and it's our, our third documentary feature that explores the strange relationship America has with science. 
Interesting. And Dan? Well, I'm Dan Phelps. Um, I'm a geologist. Uh, my background is paleontology, but I've worked in numerous other fields, including petroleum exploration, um, coal geology, and spent most of my career in state government where I worked as an environmental geologist. I retired just a couple of years ago from that, and now I teach at the community college uh, level part-time. I'm trying to get on there full-time because I'm too young to be retired. But uh, I really uh, was honored when Clayton and his crew uh, decided to talk to me about uh, the ARC Park and my continuing opposition to them getting tax monies and other public uh, assistance. So, um, uh, as you'll see in the documentary, I'm in there quite a bit. Yep. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that soon. I think just to begin with, Clayton, I'd like to ask, what was your motivation to film this documentary? Well, we, um, you know, like, as I mentioned, this was our third feature about this kind of strange um, borderland America has, the, the, the odd relationship that we have with science in, in, many, in many ways. The first two, um, we kind of ventured into where politics and, and science intersect, and, and um, it was a little bit accidental. We were filming a documentary about the search for the Higgs boson uh, at the high energy physical physics lab at the, the Tevatron, which is at Fermilab near Chicago, they were searching for the Higgs boson and then all of their budget uh, funding got cut. And so suddenly the documentary became about science funding and, and how do scientists talk to politicians and do we value that very esoteric sort of science that happens there. Our second documentary was about the two guys in 1989 that thought they had discovered cold fusion. A lot of your listeners might remember that. That's the cold fusion thing, right? So Right, right. So, um, you know, politics and, and media and greed and lots of different topics that got um, kind of blended together with science in that documentary. And throughout both of those, we, we knew that eventually we wanted to explore uh, the relationship and the, you know, that, that boundary between religion and science. And we didn't quite know how to get at this, but then in doing some research, we came across the, the concept of creationism, which we hadn't really heard before, which was, um, you know, a very scientific approach to religion where they they believe that every word in the bible is literally true and therefore it should be scientifically provable and so they've essentially created their own science uh that they use and they that to to prove the the veracity of the bible basically and they've built a museum in order to present all of their and i'm using air quotes here their their evidence um, which says, of course, the, the universe is 6,000 years old, Noah's Ark and Noah's flood really happened, and all of the ramifications there, which we'll probably get into. Uh, so we, we got really fascinated by this notion of religion creating its own alternative science. And like mm -hmm. you, we didn't really want to get into just a documentary about science, because we firmly believe you can, you can believe whatever you want. But when 
when you come out into the public with a museum and claim that this alternate reality is true and provable with science, that's a different story. And then we learned that they were about to start on the creation of this ark, uh, a full-scale replica of Noah's ark. And we thought, okay, that is, that's a story that we can explore to kind of get out this, uh, this relationship between science and religion that we were interested in. Mm-hmm. So Dan, I know you feature in the film quite a bit. How did you get involved with this project? And I say, how did you get involved with the film? But you might also mention how you got involved with the whole art struggle. Oh, gosh. Um, when I was still an undergraduate in college, uh, there was a controversy here in Lexington, Kentucky, where the creationists wanted equal time with uh, evolution and biology and other science classes. And unfortunately, um, that argument drug on for almost a year with the school board uh, split with two people in favor of creationism, two against, and one that was a uh, conservative Christian minister, uh, undecided. And ultimately, the undecided uh, Christian minister actually voted against creationism being taught in the schools of science. Um, I've been involved in the argument over this for many, many years when I left uh, Kentucky for several years as a petroleum geologist, but when I came back, that was about the same time Ken Ham arrived in Kentucky, and he's the Australian creationist that is behind both the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, and I've been involved with all the arguments about him uh, obtaining property and um, ultimately getting tax rebates and tax incentives, free land, even free cash from various government entities ever since. And I got involved with the film. Uh, Clayton called me up out of the blue. Apparently, he was trying to talk to different scientists at different museums. And their hands were sort of tied as far as being able to discuss creationism. Many of these places have uh, local supporters, including like a famous ice cream company that gives money both to the Creation Museum and to the, one of the museums, and the real, one of the real museums as well. And they were unable to discuss creationism to any great extent. Mm-hmm. So they turned around and said, talk to Dan Phelps, because I had a reputation for writing op-eds in the newspapers and trying to organize people against creationism and creationism receiving tax dollars. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's how Clayton found out about me. Would you say that those conversations were Ken Hamstrung? <laughs> if only. If I've only. actually never heard that, believe it or not. <laughs> we should should have warned you. Oh that, yeah, uh, sorry. I, like, I have a indulges in, yeah. in in puns. He, he's quite well known yeah, for that. Yeah. And and yeah, every time I hear Ken Ham being raised and uh, the fact that he was born in Australia, I feel like I need to apologize for that. But uh, <laughs> you certainly get a lot of interesting Australian characters well, that have more Australia, of an audience here in the U.S. Credit, I mean, to Australia's credit, I mean, he couldn't make very much money down there and he had to come up here to really find his fortune, so to speak. Yeah, well, there's, there's certainly a Bible Belt equivalent, maybe even several of them in various parts of Australia, particularly in parts of Queensland. But that's certainly that there's, yeah, that's where he's from. Uh, but there is no, uh, you don't have the kind of money there that, that you have here, that's for sure. He's not alone. I mean, there was uh, there was a guy who split off from Ken Ham's group, 
and got into Aliens. Uh, like they made the movie Alien Intrusion, which is also it looks like an alien movie, but it's actually a it's sort of a stealth a creationist evangelical movie. It's really weird. So oh, we talked wow. about that. yeah. So hmm. yeah, yeah, strange. But here we are. Here we are. So yeah, yeah. But we love Australia, so it's okay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, and and again, he's come here. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, right. But the, there's just so many different angles that you could have taken for this movie, uh, for this uh, this documentary. So, uh, Clayton, can you tell us in your own words what is this movie about? What's the the angle that you go for with this this documentary? Well, I think it ultimately uh, it's about science denial. I think it's about a couple different things. It's about science denial. It's also a reflection of the different bubbles, really, that have emerged in our country in the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I say that because one of the statistics that you see at the very end of the film, uh, a Gallup poll comes on and, and it says uh, 40% of Americans believe that humans were created in their present form by God less than 10,000 years ago. And when you stop and think about that for a moment, that's, that's a really large percentage of the population that um, denies the notion of evolution. The, the accepted fact of evolution has a different understanding about how old the earth is. They have a different understanding about just about every, every aspect of, um, of science. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of people are surprised by that. Uh, and so part of what the movie does is it explores a, a world that many people may not be familiar with and then also shows them this this isn't just a small group of people. This isn't a small uh, part of the country. This is a belief system that really is everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's I think the film is about science denial and it's about trying to get at a deeper understanding of who we are because right. you know we we've said this before when we try and we didn't really know what creationists look like but what we realized was they're they're us every everyone knows whether they know it or not you know a creationist <laughs> that you mm-hmm. they are uh, to be found everywhere yeah i think that that figure 40 percent is really staggering and i'm wondering how that compares to other countries like Australia, but 40% is just very high. Yeah. Well, here's one thing we found um, back in our first film when we were making the film about the search for the Higgs boson. This was back in, you know, 2007 or six, something like that. And at that time, the Dover school board trial uh, was happening where the, the school board in Dover, Pennsylvania was trying to get intelligent design into the schools. This was happening when we were making our documentary about high-energy particle physics and the search for the Higgs boson at this very international lab. So we were around all of these physicists and engineers from all over the world, and we were just curious. It wasn't really part of our story at that time, but we just asked a lot of them, is is this a thing in your country? Uh, you know, this, this attempt to get a religious understanding of science into the schools, and they pretty much all said, no, this is the, we don't do this in our country. This is really uniquely American. So I think this is, even though creationism 
can be found in lots of other countries, including Australia, including South Korea, and, and lots of other places. It's predominantly, I think, an American phenomenon, this mm -hmm. denial of, um, of evolution and this embrace of an extremely narrow understanding of how you should believe and what that belief means about your understanding of the physical world. That, that science and religion are really not compatible for many people in this country. One of them has to control the other, and they, they're seen as, as these sort of uh, hostile forces. And I think that is uniquely American. And this uh, discussion's also just brought about a memory. I have family living in Queensland uh, in a part called the Sunshine Coast, which is north of Brisbane. So it is closer to that uh, Bible Belt area of Queensland. And uh, I remember going on a hike with my family a couple of years ago, and it was in this forest area. Uh, so this beautiful forest area, and there were signs everywhere telling you about uh, the age of, of various parts of this forest. And someone had gone and scratched out millions of years on these kind of placards that they had, these metal placards, and written in 5,000 mm. years or 6,000 years. So I have there to find those pictures. I wonder if we can put them in the show notes or something. Sure. But, uh, yeah, it's just it's interesting to find that weird little link between the Bible Belt in the U.S. and the, the Bible Belt in Australia. But, yeah, I remember that and being, being amused and, and shocked by that at the time. So if the ARC encounter had strictly been a privately funded project, I don't think I would have a problem with it. I mean, I, I would disagree with the premise, but that's not what actually happened. It actually is getting uh, tax breaks and funding from the state, is if I understood that correctly. Yeah. So, Dan, how did you get involved with that fight against that aspect I was really disturbed when the, this was first announced by the governor of the state back in 2010. This is when the project for the ARC was first announced. Even though I had problems with the already existing Creation Museum about its educational uh, claims, I, I didn't oppose their right to have a business or anything like that involved. You know, it was their their money and people paying them. Um, when it was announced in 2010, they were going to get, uh, oh gosh, more than $60 million in tax uh, rebate or tax incentive money from the tourism board. Wow. As it now stands with their, the ARC, the way it is planned, to, or the way it's designed today, they're getting $1.825 million per year as an incentive from state government for the next um think eight more years they've been uh, open for several years now so um that was a real big thing and it turned out also the local government gave them uh 100 acres of land that they sold them for for two dollars uh they also gave them wow. 200, nearly two hundred thousand dollars cash to build in the area because one of the city council people had um sort of spilled the beans to the real estate people that were going to sell them the land that they were going to build in the Williamstown, Kentucky area. And as a way of uh, making up for the fact they, they caused them to have to pay more for the property than was originally asked, the local government gave nearly $200,000 to them. Wow. And there's all these other things where 
they improved the interstate access and stuff like that. It was really nice for the town, but they were they did this basically on the projection that uh, there was going to be hordes of people backing up the interstate. The state government spent $11 million improving the interstate access, even though it was pretty much unnecessary. There's not all these hordes of people coming down the interstate and blocking the interstate travel to get on the off-ramp to get to the ARC. In yeah. fact, even on opening day, at one of their largest attendance levels, uh, they never had any problem with huge numbers of people blocking the interstate. So this all has to do, of course, with the American concept of the separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. And um, they ended up uh, winning a lawsuit over this when Americans United and a number of other organizations uh, objected to them having uh, the tax incentives they originally had claimed that they were not going to discriminate in hiring. The main reason the government gave them all these tax rebates initially was that there was going to be all these jobs created. And the people behind the Ark Encounter, the Answers in Genesis, uh, basically claimed that they were not going to discriminate, and they agreed to that. They would hire anybody that came along that was qualified for a particular position. And um, at some point... They changed this, and they didn't tell the government that they changed it. And I discovered an advertisement on their website right about the same time they were getting their final approval for the 18 and a quarter million dollars over a 10-year period, that they required a statement of faith uh, to belong to be hired by the Creation Museum and the ARC, or excuse me, not the Creation Museum, but the ARC. They also decided for ARC employment that you needed to tell what church you attended, You had to attend a Bible-believing church, and you had to sign a statement of faith that basically excluded everybody but fundamentalist Christians, uh, no Jews, uh, no Catholics, none of any one of a number of conservative religious Christian sects here in Kentucky would be qualified, and of course no atheists or agnostics. You also basically had to agree that you wouldn't have premarital sex. And, of course, being gay or anything like that was a total no-no to them. So they had all these religiously-based hiring things while still supposedly going to receive uh, tax incentives. When I exposed this in an op-ed to the newspaper, eventually Americans United for the Separation of Church and State got involved. And they were able to um, convince the government that it was a really bad idea to do this. And after some fighting back and forth between state government and the people behind the ARC encounter, the state withdrew the $18 million um, over a 10-year period. (laughs) This resulted in a lawsuit, and unfortunately it happened, the lawsuit happened at just the time we were changing governors. And the lawsuit was ruled in favor of Answers in Genesis receiving the money, just like any other uh, they cl- the, the judge claimed they were just like any other business in spite of their religious hiring practices. And almost all the constitutional attorneys said this would easily be beat on appeal. But at that point, we had a new governor that was a conservative fundamentalist Christian named uh, Matt Bevin. Uh, and he, um, he was not willing to continue the lawsuit. So at that point, they ended up with the 18 and a quarter million dollars spread out over a period of 10, 10 years. Wow. That's tragic to me. Mm-hmm. I have my own little experience with 
evolution related decisions in politics. We I live in Cobb County, Georgia. Oh, okay. Yeah, in 2002, our Board of Education decided to put stickers in bio, biology textbooks that said, this textbook contains material on evolution. Evolution is a theory, not a fact, mm -hmm. regarding the origin of living things. This material should be approached with an open mind, studied carefully, and critically considered. Uh, it is a right. rock of crap. <laughs> in the film, everything that Dan just described is kind of laid out there, but a few minutes ago you said you know you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily be opposed to this, um, except for you know this was a a real problem the funding. But there's another thing that the film gets into a little bit that that is not necessarily um, illegal or you couldn't really go to court over it. There, it's but it's just as disturbing, and that is that. Um, the uh, the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum are owned by this company called Answers in Genesis. They have an enormous um, market for homeschooling materials, for science materials. And part, there's a scene in the film where we go into their education warehouse, and it looks you know it looks kind of like the Amazon warehouse. It's huge, <laughs> and they are sending materials out. Uh, they, they show us a few things. There's DVDs, there's books, there's all kinds of study guides for homeschooling. They don't just say evolution is a theory. They say the earth is 6,000 years old and we can prove it with science. You know, when, when you think about the amount of influence that they have kind of goes under the radar, that's really um, disturbing and shocking and, and concerning because there's really no large-scale way to get at this. It's, it has trickled way down to the individual school boards, and, and then past that, it's trickled down to families who are homeschooling and looking for science materials, and Answers in Genesis has, uh, has all of this ready to go. So their influence is quite expansive. That's a really good point. So let me clarify to say that I'm torn between my belief that people should be able to freely believe whatever they want to and my absolute intense belief that there is a material universe and that we can discover facts about it through the mechanism of science to reduce the amount of incorrect ideas and the, the revelation that the natural selection can explain the complexity in biology and many other things is real, factual, and that the consequences of magical thinking can be deadly. That taking faith-based approaches and non-scientific approaches to problems created through biology, for example, let's just say for hypothetically that viruses mutate through natural selection and maybe a virus would emerge where 
believing that the earth was 6,000 years ago and that you can pray it away is not actually going to be helpful. That what you need is a deep understanding of how things modify over time and how the body's natural resistance can be modified through the use of vaccines. These kind of things come through science, not the Bible. And while I do appreciate the importance of faith, I find it deeply troubling that people can get into political power, try to enforce their faith, and actually suppress the facts of how things really work. So that is actually a big problem for me. Of course, here in Kentucky, um, even though evolution is in the curriculum officially, uh, many teachers end up skipping the subject. Yes. Uh, they're afraid of any sort of controversy. Here Therefore, too. Therefore, sort of the field is almost not in Kentucky. No, no, it's in Georgia too. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 All the Southeast. And California. I'm wondering with the, the current climate, too, given the pandemic and everyone's having to homeschool, uh, I'm wondering if they're experiencing a lot of business with their, their books and their schooling materials, uh, and they're really going to be yeah. forcing yeah, them onto people Google, at the moment. Yeah, if you use Google just to look for homeschooling material and science, Answers in Genesis is one of the first things that pop up. I'm oh, not no. sure if it is and the first is- thing, but it's one of the top several. Mm. This brings up another issue, which is something that that David McMillan, the former creationist who appears in our film, mentions. He used to be uh, deeply into creationism. He was an absolute avowed creationist. And he said he felt like he knew a lot more science than the average person because, let's face it, a lot of people have gaps in their understanding of knowledge uh, of science. And Answers in Genesis comes along and, and fills these gaps with very easily understandable, clear ideas and answers. So you feel like you know a lot of science. And the problem is that's happening in a vacuum because for various reasons, the actual science community has a much more difficult time doing that. Uh, for exactly. one reason, one I'm of the teach a class on the history of life with an emphasis on dinosaurs for my community college students, and it takes a whole semester to even explain some of these really uh, complex ideas about how life has originated and changed, uh, how evolution basically has occurred in the history of life. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. And the creationists have such a simple answer that they can present it in just a few minutes' time, and they insist it is this truth, and if you aren't part of their mindset, uh, you're pretty much condemned as having some sort of moral or religious deficiency to yourself. And therefore, mm -hmm. people are afraid to question what they claim. Well, actually, that's a, one of my questions I was going to ask. Maybe I missed it, but I didn't see in the film where you gave a detailed explanation of natural selection. But it felt like I think if I'm if I'm right about that, and I didn't miss it. The it's it just is a good demonstration of how you can say, well, God did it. Boom, you're done. I mean, that's their argument. Mm -hmm. and it's, you don't have to go very far. I, I could probably give a five minute explanation of natural selection, uh, but I don't think I could do it in less than that. Clayton had to end the film someplace and. How much footage do you have of not only David McMillan, but myself discussing various aspects of science that you just didn't have time to put in the film? I mean, the film mm -hmm. had to be limited yeah. to a reasonable amount of time. And it's, it's also, you know, we, we decided early on we could make a film where all of the creationist scientific claims were refuted by actual scientific claims. But we decided not to do that for a couple of reasons. One of them is, as Dan said, real science is hard and it takes a long time. And a viewer is, you know, who is not necessarily versed in science, didn't really sign up for a, a science class when they started watching the film. Um, but also we're getting at this subculture and this kind of this understanding of the story of what's happening. And so we wanted this to be told by and about the people involved in the Ark Encounter construction. So, you know, we have interviews with other scientists uh, around the country, and we just ultimately decided that's just not the way we want to go about this. We want to hear from the people who are actually there. So that was a decision that we made, and, and I think... It's what makes the movie emotionally resonant, resonant, um, and yeah, it's it's. But it's something we talk a lot about. Uh, but one thing that I think is really uh, kind of encapsulates this this notion that we're talking about. At one point in the film, Ken Ham is talking to the the people at the opening of the Ark Encounter, and they have a few, a handful of PhD scientists on staff, and. Right. One of the other facets about this is, as Dan said, you know, it, real science is hard. And it's such an easy thing for Ken Ham to say, look, we have these PhD scientists on staff. You can just relax and believe them. They've got it figured out. So he says, um, you know, when you come to the Ark Encounter, talk to our PhD scientists. You won't understand a word they're saying, but talk to them. <laughs> And everyone laughs. Yeah. Remember that. But when you think about it, that's really what they're being asked to do. Take their word for it. Whereas someone in Dan's science class 
is actually learning it so that they can see for themselves. And, and that's, I think, a, a critical point here. And, of course, to be hired by Answers in Genesis, you have to sign all these statements of faith, including uh, things to the effect that uh, no, dif no geological difficulties can be encountered. Uh, they can all be explained by the Bible. The earth is 6,000 years old. Uh, Noah's flood was about 2350 B.C., they're actually very specific that the earth is created in 24-hour days. They disagree with many of their fellow creationists that actually take a view that the universe could be somewhat older and consider them heretics and wouldn't hire them on any situation. So, as I point out in the film at one point, just because you have a degree in something doesn't mean that you act scientifically. And... All that a science degree really means is that you have shown that you're capable of being a scientist. You've, mm -hmm. you've done some sort of research project, you've taken classes, and ultimately you're um, awarded a degree because you're, you show that you're capable of putting together a good research uh, dissertation and are able to defend it to your fellow scientists. And of course these people get legitimate degrees, sometimes from very good schools, but they turn around and they sign this statement of faith and their career and their science pretty much stops at this point. Mm -hmm. You have geologists claiming that the earth is 6,000 years old. You have all these mental gyrations that make rock deposits that formed in deserts suddenly become ocean deposits just so it would be part of Noah's flood. Uh, it's just incredible some of the things their biochemists will claim. Uh, they'll have claims of... Um, dinosaurs and humans together you know if you look at some of the stuff on the ark they have all sorts of dinosaurs and cages uh, models of, and all these different things the creation museum is famous for having the triceratops with a saddle on it and um, they even have <laughs> yeah. displays at the creation museum claiming that some di some di dinosaurs breathe fire and that they're responsible for dragon legends and they claim that dragons were our dinosaurs were on noah's ark and they were responsible for fire-breathing dragon legends, and they didn't go extinct till the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. So you have just total insanity. Um, it's just hard to even start on where so much of this stuff is wrong. Mm -hmm. And, and it's that's, that's... because they've started with their conclusions and ignoring any side evidence that shows that they're wrong. That's another um, thing that we ran up against when we were talking to scientists. Um, as we talked about earlier, some of them were worried about funding. Uh, didn't want to mention creationism or creationists or religion for fear of blowback. But many other scientists were just so dismissive of creationism and creationists as just being lunatics that they wouldn't take it seriously and wouldn't wouldn't give any um, counter arguments. Mm -hmm. And and even when Bill Nye, and this is a, is a real controversial decision, when Bill Nye decided to debate Ken Ham, one of the themes in our film at that time was, do you ignore or do you confront? You know, as a scientist, do you just ignore this because they're all crazy and who cares? Or do you confront it? And decided to confront it. And I, I think to, to his credit, I think there's a lot of reasons people have that, that say it was not a good thing, but at least he presented a rational opposing voice as opposed right. to just kind of letting them 
exist unchallenged, which yeah. unfortunately mm-hmm. it happens because, as Dan says, some of the claims are so outrageous that you just, where do you start? Mm-hmm. Of course, I disagree with uh, Bill Nye for doing a formal debate. They've actually offered to have their people debate me at various times and tried to goad me into debating them in various emails that I've received, and I just refuse to do it. Is that because of the false equivalency? Yeah, it, it already it sort of already starts out with the premise that there's something to debate. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. there's not. I mean, this stuff has been out of uh, science since at least the 1830s. The version of creationism they're putting forth uh, was pretty much disproven by geologists that also, many of which were Christian ministers, way back in 1830s Britain. Uh, this just isn't a, a subject that is really of any contention with any serious scientist. Mm-hmm. So if you end up in a formal debate, you typically will end up in front of a church audience or some sort of for- format that they already have the advantage. Right. I try right. to fight them in like newspaper articles and uh, short interviews and things like that. I've appeared opposite one of their employees that has a degree in the history of, of geology. And he appeared on a a public radio station with me on a one-hour show here a few years back. And some of the nonsense he put forward was just incredible. I didn't have time to uh, debunk so many of the things he said in just a short period of time. Are you familiar with the Gish Gallup? Yeah, it's called the Gish Gallup. Other things they do that are just so outrageous, this guy uh, compared scientific peer review in journals, how science basically... um, uh, reviews ideas on whether or not they are um, good science or not. And he compared it to a racist cop pulling over a black person on a traffic violation. Mm-hmm. It just outrageous, wow. unbelievably <laughs> outrageous claims like that. And where do you start? I mean, they can say so much in five minutes that you might need five lawyers to uh, debunk everything they've said. So with 40% of uh, Americans believing in this, how do we tackle yeah. this issue? Of course, the 40% <laughs> number, I'm a little skeptical of. It depends on how the Gallup poll was asked. But right. I would say a full 10% of the public uh, agrees with the version of creationism put forth by Answers in Genesis. It's still and high. <laughs> it's still way too high, and they're concentrated mm-hmm. in some areas. That's why Kentucky was such fertile ground for them to show up in. Mm-hmm. That's a Gallup poll, not a Gish Gallup poll. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just to be clear. <laughs> so that number is people who believe uh, in a creationist versus evolution, but not necessarily. It, there's flavors. There's flavors of creationism. There's young earth. There's old earth. There's the sort of uh, there's there's plenty of liberal Christians or in Catholic Christians who believe in natural selection and evolution as the mechanism by which a divine creator got to the diversity of life. Exactly. Uh, Eugenie Scott has this wonderful diagram she puts out. She's a famous anthropologist. And friend of the show. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We've had her and, on. Um, she has this diagram that shows, I think she calls it something like the creation evolution continuum. Everything from flat earth people uh, all the way into uh, people that thought the devil put fossils in the ground. And then there's the young earth creationists like Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis and then there's numerous old earth creationists, there's intelligent design creationists, 
And ultimately, any religious believer at some level is a creationist. It's just that they many most mainstream religions accept that natural selection and evolution are the major mechanisms for evolution. Some people uh, will accept evolution completely except for humans. And you, you encounter just every flavor you could imagine. There's a whole continuum all the way from flat earthers to atheists that don't take any of the creationist stuff seriously. Mm-hmm. I think what bothers me about that is the implication that you can't have a scientific worldview and a, and a religious view. I, I, while I myself have ended up becoming a, a, a non-theist, I know plenty of people who are scientists and are people of faith. And they use critical thinking and the scientific method to make advances. And these are people who believe the Earth is billions of years old and that the universe is even more billions of years old. But they also found a place where they believe in a divine creator. That's I don't have a problem with that. But when people believe the world is obviously against all physical evidence, a different age, 6,000 years is laughable. We have tree records older than that. I mean, it's just laughable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that kind of blind faith is not without danger. And I think, you know, my, my parents are in their 70s. They believe the earth is probably 6,000 years old. They've never had to reconcile the disparity between all the dinosaur shows that I watched growing up and their worldview that the earth is young. So, that's okay for them. They've lived full lives. Now they're at the end of their lives and they're fine. There's not any selective pressure against those people. And I'm not, I'm not saying there should be. I'm just saying that you can live a long, full life believing in nonsense. But what you can't do is advance human knowledge that way. It's a dead end. It's an intellectual dead end. There's a, you know, a complication to that. You will hear a lot of creationists say, oh, I love science. We absolutely believe in science, and they'll embrace the, the latest and greatest scientific um, discoveries and advances. It just has to do specifically with the age of the Earth, where they will, uh, you know, in geology and, and yeah. evolution. But they, they have absolutely no problem being a, a lover of science who believes the Earth is 6,000 years old. And further, they believe that by subscribing to this view, they are participating in what they consider to be very good science. So you get this strange combination of, you know, an absolute enthusiasm about science while simultaneously believing something that is scientific nonsense. And that's, you know, we we interviewed a couple of the PhD scientists on staff and it does kind of make you wonder, you know, how do you get through a PhD and still hold these these beliefs? And David, the you know, the former creationist said, every creationist in their mind has a little a little guy or a little door that opens when things that agree with your worldview are coming through, and then it closes when you see things that don't agree with your worldview. So yeah, it's 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 a really interesting study in psychology the the way people can can hold contradictory worldviews in their minds with with no problem at all. And and we've created these bubbles where that are self-reinforcing. So that's one reason I I disagree slightly with Dan about Bill Nye because many of the people in that audience had never heard their belief system challenged before. 
because they're so thoroughly entrenched with it. And okay, here comes someone who's saying some things I've never heard before. Like, and I keep quoting David, he said, no one until he was in college, no one ever presented him with the idea that Genesis could be an allegory. It was always presented as history. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's it kind of... It unfolds a really odd um, philosophy of science where it's broken up into observational science and stuff that has happened in the past. And the creationists are usually um, cool with things that they can directly observe, but any interpretation of the past is considered just um, um, a heresy almost, uh, or at least not science, yeah. apparently second-rate science at best. And that's why when you get school groups together, he'll tell the kids, this, this, there's clips of this in the movie, where... He, he and his co-workers will instruct uh, children that if they encounter a scientist that says such and such dinosaur is millions of years old, the kids are supposed to ask, were you there? As if that yeah. somehow refutes the idea that the fossil could be millions of years old because there wasn't anybody there when the, when the animal was alive. Mm -hmm. And this is just yeah. a really bizarre philosophy of science where past events just can't be interpreted. If our legal system was like this, we'd never convict anybody of a crime. We'd never have forensic science. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just incredible, some of the stuff. And yet, Ken Ham will tell this to literally hundreds of school kids. Yes, that's at a time. tragic, heartbreaking. And it, I, I really found that yes. horrifying. Creepy. Yeah. But also, the, the, yeah. um, the idea that, that everything in the Bible has to literally be true Yet a big part of Jesus's ministry was performed through parables. And parables, what are they if not metaphor? I mean, it's it's just it's it's so intellectually lazy. I find it deeply offensive. I, I just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think uh, as a show where we talk a lot about critical thinking and skepticism, I think this has parallels too to the idea of paying attention to the hits and not the misses, which we encounter a lot uh, in talking about psychics and. Mm -hmm. Um, and in regards to David and his thinking and, and how um, uh, just focused he was on certain aspects and not on others, I think it's something that we encounter a lot when it comes to other areas of, of talking about science. Another mind trick that, that Ken Ham does is, um, and we, you see this at, at a, clip, a clip at the very end of the film, where they say, you know, this is not, science versus science. This is not even science versus religion. This is religion versus religion. And they, they freely admit to their confirmation bias and justify that by claiming that mainstream science is engaged in the exact same bit of confirmation bias. That they have a belief system. It's not science. Their, their belief in evolution is a belief system just as the creationist belief in the Bible is a belief system. And the two are equal. You can decide which one makes most sense to you, which, mm -hmm. of course, is completely opposite of what science actually is. There's no, there's no belief statement that scientists sign off on. Uh, mm -hmm. That's just total craziness compare, trying to compare what they do to what science actually does. But that, that's a recurring theme we have. On the outside of science, people have this idea that science is uh, an orthodoxy, it's an ivory tower, and it's like if you're working inside science, it's a 
brutal competition to constantly look for some new thing. It's not about pre preserving the history or, or any, or whatever your personal belief system is. It's, it's about trying to find mm -hmm. out what's real, what's provable, what's different, what's new. It's, it's such a different thing from what's presented. And it's also a matter <laughs> of trying to disprove ideas. Yes, yes. I mean, that's yeah. what mm -hmm. science actually progresses is by disproving Yes, things. yes. Exactly. But we're drawing closer to the end of the interview, so we should probably get back to the, the documentary a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, we should just clarify, too, if, if uh, I don't know who would prefer to answer, but what is the difference between the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter? <laughs> Can I go first, Clayton? Sure, sure. <laughs> well... The Creation Museum is nonprofit. The Ark Encounter is a for-profit uh, corporation, mm -hmm. but the surrounding land is owned by a, a nonprofit. And all of these mm -hmm. organizations are like a series of shells with both nonprofit and for-profit companies under the umbrella of Answers in Genesis. In my research, I've become sort of a detective as far as looking up uh, property ownership and stuff like that. <laughs> and this would give a, an accountant a nightmare trying to figure out which companies are for-profit, which ones are non-profit. And it's just such a weird mixture of the two. And they even have a company nobody, not many people have heard of called Taken Back Enterprises that owns a bunch of property. But this company is 51% owned by Answers in Genesis. Uh, as far as the contents and all of the Ark Encounter versus the Creation Museum, they're both sort of equally religious. The Ark uh, lacks the fire-breathing dinosaurs, so I've always <laughs> joked that apparently Noah didn't have any asbestos on right. asbestos <laughs> on board. Um, but it's a big thing they mentioned quite a bit at the Creation Museum. Mm -hmm. And it is really odd. So much of the ark is nothing more than posters on the wall that you walk along and just read the posters to get various aspects of creationist dogma. There's also a lot more um, imagination used at the ark. They've invented names for all of Noah's family members. Remember, in the Bible, only Noah and his sons are mentioned by name. But on the ark, uh, each each of the wives has a name. They've named the local restaurant after her, after Noah's wife, Esmera's Cafe is the name they claim that she had. And several years back, there was a movie with Russell Crowe on Noah's, about Noah's Ark. And they criticized the holy hell out of that movie for all the things they made up that weren't in the Bible. But yet, when you go to the Ark Encounter, they have all these things that are just equally made up that they, they claim about the uh, the Ark and, and all that. Apparently it's all right because Ken Ham and his uh, immediate people have uh, said it was okay. Sometime in the past 15, 20 years, hypocrisy's lost its currency value. I, I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it's just it's just completely, I mean, I still can recognize it, but nobody cares. I, I mean, it just, it, it just <laughs> I don't know what happened there, but it, it still eats at me. I can't stand to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And if somebody calls me out where I'm doing it, I feel deeply ashamed. And I don't know what happened <laughs> to us as a people, but wow, we've really lost that. Yeah, I really wish I could get down somebody on it. with a good background and investigative reporting and the like 
to sit down and go to each county in Kentucky and maybe southern Indiana and southern Ohio and find out what all these people own. It's incredible some of the things I've found just for a few counties. Wow. I have one piece of land. They spent uh, 45 acres near the Creation Museum where this company called Taken Back Industries, which Answers in Genesis owns 51% of, they spent almost $1.75 million on property that was appraised at being only worth $230,000. Mm-hmm. And today, the local PVA taxes them as if the property is only worth $10,000. Wow. And because of that, the local schools don't get as much tax money out of what they what the property is potentially worth. How serious are you about like wanting help with that? Oh, it would be cool if we just had somebody that just go to every county clerk's office in Kentucky, yeah. in northern Kentucky, and sit down with all these records and sort out all the different companies and everything else. It's really incredible. I could put this in the show if you want to. We can just say, you know, where, where would they email you or how would you like to be contacted? Maybe you could help coordinate it. Okay, yeah, they can contact me. Uh, you can provide my email address, adrioasteroid at msn.com. Okay. I have some cool pictures I need to send you all. They have a diorama at the Ark showing a Roman-style arena. And this was featured shortly in the film, where they have giants and humans and a Carnotaurus dinosaur all fighting, fighting together in this ancient pre-flood arena. See, that would be great for a Ray Harryhausen movie. It's just not great for a for science. Movie, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a hell of a, of a movie, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if I would I would say if any if you can get Dan any kind of help. Yeah. <laughs> Dan is fighting the good fight. Um, let's do a few filmmaking related questions. Now, did I rec- that was was that Cliff Martinez in the intro music? No, it's uh, our composer is Kate Simcoe. So that was that was all original music. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's Kate Simcoe's music in the intro. That's beautiful. Is there going to be like, can I get that music somewhere? Yeah, she, she <laughs> has the soundtrack. Uh, if you go to our our web page, which is webelieveindinosaurs.net, there's a link to uh, to Kate Simcoe's album, and it's it's out on Lakeshore Records, which is. A big, uh, a big label that does a lot of soundtracks. So um, we were thrilled about that, and so, so is she. So yeah, definitely check that out. Yeah, Clayton, don't you have a piece in there? Is that you that's playing the guitar yeah. in the background while Jim Helton is on the phone with the? Uh, no, oh, that's <laughs> no, that that that's not me. Um, but there's a couple of my. Uh, I did a, I did a couple of tunes on the soundtrack, but they're they're actually when you're going through the arc, believe it or not, Dan. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> well, just a few yeah. final questions. Has um, Ham responded to the film at all, or the the Ark Encounter? Have they had anything to say about the the documentary? They're mostly quiet, but they actually um, uh, when there was some stories in the local Lexington Herald Leader and various other newspapers around the state, including the Courier Journal and Northern Kentucky uh, newspapers, where he said uh, he said various bad things about how biased the film was and how it was a hatchet job and <laughs> all these different typical things that um, basically it, it, he was almost projecting some of his own behavior onto, right. on, onto Clayton and the other filmmakers. That's how you do it. If you're going to like, if you're going to lean into this hypocrisy thing, you, you definitely want to make sure that you blame others for what you do. That's that's how it's done. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
Cool boy. Yeah. And I'll send and we you had a interestingly op-ed I wrote in response to him. It's pretty interesting. After the little town of Williamstown did all this work towards him getting the money and all these different tax breaks and the land and two hundred thousand dollars, and yet, as you see in the film, the town is still financially in horrible shape. Right. And Ham says, well, the little town was just across the other side of the interstate from us, and it's sort of too bad that they didn't make any money. And, of course, I in my op-ed point out that when Ham was begging for all this money and receiving all this money, he knew the town was on the opposite side of the interstate from the Ark. And, and, and he pretty claimed wild. that they yeah. would be... He claimed that they would be financially enriched mm-hmm. by it, um, you know, when he needed the money. But then when they didn't make the money, as Dan says, then he's like, well, he kind of blamed it on the town, in other words. Yeah. Like, well, this should have known. But uh, if you also, send your all's emails, I'll send you a uh, link you can put onto the show of something I wrote recently. Sure, absolutely. Great, yeah. great. Interestingly, um, Eric Hovind, who's, who is uh, one of the creationist evangelist um he put a call out to his followers to give us one star ratings on imdb so yeah. we we had a, a pretty decent score on imdb and then all of a sudden it, it just tanked because he, he put the call out i guess one more question just about the the film we've talked a bit about the music where can our listeners go to find the documentary that's a really yes. good question <laughs> um and maybe maybe we can Put this around at the top of the show, but um, yes. yeah, they uh, they can they can see it just about on all the platforms. Um, it's not on Netflix, but it's pretty much everywhere else. Uh, you can see it on iTunes, on Amazon, on Google Play, on Vudu, on Fandango, and then also here's something kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. On April thirtieth, we are having a uh, you know in in this virtual. Uh, isolated world now. We're, we're going to have a, a movie party on April 30th at 7 p.m. Central. Uh, we're inviting people from all across the country to rent the film on whatever platform they want and press play at the same time, 7 p.m. Central. And we, the filmmakers, and Dan and David will, will all be available on Zoom. We'll kind of do a live commentary uh, tweet along with it, and so people, even if you've watched it before, it'd be a fun way to watch it, but if you haven't, you can just watch it on your own or watch and listen, but then afterwards, we'll have a, a virtual Q&A and panel discussion, so that's April right 30th at, at 7. I think I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah. We better get this episode out before then. <laughs> oh, wait, I've got, I've got tickets to a yeah, big show that, oh, no, I great. don't. But... <laughs> all right right but but you can it you can go to our website we believe in dinosaurs.net and there you can find the info about that and how to register for it and and how to log on and do it and all that kind of stuff. fantastic well i will absolutely work on getting this episode out way before that and then also we'll definitely uh, put that on social media within our networks so that'd be great and i you know i don't know uh, where else you've been promoting it, but hopefully you'll get some audience people out here who will be totally on the side of science. So that'll be good. Yeah, definitely. Great. <laughs> so I guess we have a, a final question for you guys. And by the way, thank you for being so generous with your time. We really appreciate it. Yes. Um, so individually, our, our signature question for first time guests is what's your favorite monster? 
And I don't know if they told you that up front. Or I, I tried to get it to you in time. But, yeah, so uh, you want to start, Dan? Oh, sure. If you had asked me six months ago, I would have probably said the Kraken. Because in the movie, um, in the movie um, Clash of the Titans, mm-hmm. he went from Scandinavia to the Mediterranean to get Greek takeout. That? That's a good joke. Yeah. Um, but today, I think my favorite monster is Bigfoot because he he's smart enough to leave us the fuck alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Clayton. A shout out to the flying spaghetti monster for sure. <laughs> nice. Um, but I, I know this is a boring answer, but I I gotta say I kind of I'm a big fan of Godzilla because he's morally ambiguous. You know, it's uh, we we kind of think, well, is he really gonna help us or is he really gonna smush us? Ooh. And we don't really know. And and I kind of like that. He's the Clint Eastwood of kaiju. Like yeah, the, the, the yeah. spaghetti western version. He's the, the yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Blake's son wouldn't find that answer. No, no, no. All. Goodness, no. We 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 are a Godzilla family here. Absolutely. <laughs> Isn't there? I'm not sure if it's an urban legend or not, but I always heard, and I, it's probably false, that in the Japanese version of Godzilla versus King Kong, Godzilla wins, and in the American version, King Kong wins. That is so interesting that you would say that. Um, my, is that true? Well, it, it, it's <laughs> certainly a story I heard many times, but uh, and I'd have to do a little research, and maybe I'll just do an insert here. But the last thing I read on it was that it was an urban legend that that oh. there is not actually a different version. <laughs> that being said, there are definitely differences between a lot of those movies, and uh, my favorite one. It, well, I, I mean, I liked the American version for years until I finally got to see the Japanese version of the original Gojira, and. The what they did was, if you're not familiar with it, so I mean, most of our listeners will know this, but they took the original Japanese film and they needed to insert an American character into it so that you know American audiences would accept it, right? I I, I think that that's turned out to historically not be needed, but you know we did it was new, it was different, and so they they put in Raymond Burr as yeah. as a sort yeah. of like newscaster character, but his name, his character's name is Steve Martin. And I, I cannot watch that now without cracking up every time that they say his name. Mm-hmm. Well, the cultural things in the Godzilla movies, too, that are just so bizarre. I guess if you're not Japanese, there's the Mothra. Yes. Uh, yeah. Where, where Mothra's in it. And they have these two little... The two little miniature yeah, girls. The, yeah, the two little weird miniature girls. And it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but... <laughs> I guess it's a cultural thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of like Chekhov's gun. If you introduce two tiny miniature singing ladies, you have to use them by the last act. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know which uh, monster hasn't really survived too much into later movies is, is Gamera, yeah. the flying turtle, the spinning oh, flying a, turtle, which uh, um, I always he's had a, a soft friend of children everywhere. Gamera, but... And uh, it, uh, he's really yeah. neat, and he's, he's full of turtle mane. <laughs> <He is broke. laughs> Uh-huh. He does, yeah. His, his legs become rocket. Yeah, yeah. I, I was discussing this with a coworker today. That's Impressive. literally how my life is. So, <laughs> says a lot. So, yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Clayton. Thank you so Absolutely. much, Dan, for your time. And oh, thank uh, you all. We we both really enjoyed the documentary, and uh, it's just great to to talk with you both and get these different perspectives uh, on your documentary. 
It's a lot of I'm fun. I'm going to try something. I don't know if you'll listen to this or not, yeah. guys, but I, I'm going to try to do a five-minute natural selection explanation before the show starts. So when that'll be part of my intro. I, I, I just feel like the, the fact that so many people don't believe in it is led to just this vast amount of ignorance, and it just needs to be better understood, you know, because it's a lot more important than people realize. So, Thomas Henry Huxley's uh, comment on first finding out about natural selection from Darwin was uh, basically how incredibly stupid it was of me not yeah, to have thought of yeah, that that's myself. The, all the best theories are like that. Well, of course, it's obvious once somebody points it out. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a little um, finer point on it. I mean, I know we're, we're wrapping up and everything, but I think you might find some creationists who believe in natural selection, but they don't oh. believe in, they call it molecules to man evolution. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they'll, they'll have no problem with Darwin's finches and that kind of stuff. But when you talk about one, uh, you know, what they view as a simpler form of life evolving to a complicated form of life, that's where they draw the line. Yeah. So you'll give an example like that, and let's say, uh, "Well, there's still birds." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that's true. It, it it is a thing that people say. But if if you do much work with design, you you learn pretty quickly that every complicated design that works evolved from a simpler design that also worked. And that's literally how you make code. It's how you make machines. It always starts with something simpler that works, and then you add on it and add on it, and complexity is sort of an emergent property of continuing to have different needs met. So I I, uh, I, I accept that they have a need for that in their mind, but I can't accept that there's a need for that in reality. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with filmmaker Clayton Brown and paleontologist Dan Phelps about their new movie, We Believe in Dinosaurs. If you'd like to help Dan in his efforts to research the complicated business entities behind the Ark Encounter, please check the show notes for his contact information. There might be some challenges with getting access to records right now, but it's an interesting mystery, and who knows what will turn up. Details for the We Believe in Dinosaurs watching party are also in the show notes. Monster Talk Live will continue this Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, and we're joined by David Perlmutter from Texas Tech. This week we'll be discussing post-apocalyptic fiction. I don't know what specifically we'll be talking about, but hopefully it'll cover everything from The Earth Abides to Cherry 2000. Check out our Facebook group for details. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store, where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next-level monster enthusiast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. 
Special thanks to Sean Parks for his help editing this episode. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. been a Monster House presentation.